Well, good evening, everyone. <laughs> That's some of you. Good evening, study life. I almost said freedom life. Uh, I bring greetings from my freedom life family. Um, I feel like y'all are extended family, so I feel really welcome here. I love uh, Fred and Vanessa and, uh, you know, uh, Chris and David and gotten to know a bunch of you and uh, my good friends, Shani and Nathaniel. We go way back. So uh, we feel like City Life is kind of our extended family. So thank you for just welcoming me this weekend. It's been such a great, great time to be with you. Um, how many of you were here this morning? Can I hear? Woo! Okay. Really good. Um, I started with a confession this morning. You all remember that? Yeah. Well, I have another confession to make. <laughs> Can I start with that? Um, here's my confession. I actually dislike women's events. <laughs> um, and primarily because, and I love that we celebrated Women's History Month just now, but I dislike women's events primarily because it, it uh, fosters these narrow stereotypes of women. Yeah, and I love today where we celebrated women of all kinds and all walks of life and all seasons of life. And I, and I love the, the expansiveness of God's kingdom for both men and women to walk in the calling that God has for them. Amen? Amen. And so I come here today, I'm full I'm all in with my floral jacket. <laughs> and one of the things that really used to annoy me, and Shani will laugh at this, uh, really annoy me about women's conferences is how always, I'm always told, you're loved and you're beautiful. And I remember telling a friend at seminary, like, if someone, is t if someone would tell me one more time that I'm loved and I'm beautiful, I'm going to scream. But today, the irony is that the, the message that the Lord has been just depositing in my heart for me and for the church is this word, you are my beloved. And it's the irony because I'm like, oh, this is something I should have graduated from, right, at Sunday school. But more than 20 years of following Jesus and being in ministry, I've come to realize that this is at the very core of who I am and who we are, and who God's called us to be. And so now I'm fully all in. I'm all in. I'm all in into understanding what it means to be his beloved, to stand under the gaze of the God who looks at me and says, I'm beloved. And here's the irony. I looked up my, the meaning of my name. Cheryl literally means beloved. So I can't, <laughs> I can't run from this. I can't run for this. But today, we gather together as a community of the beloved. Amen. That we are his beloved. Those who are loved because he is loved and he loves us. And so our scripture today is from Mark chapter 1, verse 9 to 13. And if you would turn with me or you can look at the screen. And verse 9 reads, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of, Galilee, Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As you can tell, I've been here since 8 this morning, so I'm a little tired. If my words get jumbled, you, you can uh, hear me in the spirit. Verse 10, And just as he was coming out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice from heaven, You are my son, the beloved, with you I'm well pleased. This is before Jesus has done any miracles. Jesus has, before he's healed anyone, before he has even gone to the cross, which was the mission the Father had sent him on. And God looks on him and says, my beloved, you are my beloved. 
and verse 12, and the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts and the angels waited on him. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for the way that you are working in our midst. Thank you for the way that you are already speaking. And so, God, we ask that, Lord, you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to know what your spirit is saying to us, to the church tonight. We pray this in your name. And everyone say, amen, amen. Um, we are currently in the church calendar in the season of Lent. And I know a, a lot of us who are in evangelical churches or non-denominational churches, we don't typically celebrate Lent. But Lent is this season in the church calendar, a 40-day period before Easter. And I don't know what your uh, experience with Lent is. Maybe you think, oh, Lent is the time where we give up chocolate or Catholics give up chocolate. <laughs> but Lent has been practiced in the church for centuries, since the fourth century. And in Lent, it's really about journeying with Jesus through his 40-day journey in the wilderness. And in some ways, mirroring the Israelites' 40-year journey in the wilderness. It's a time of repentance, renewal. It's preparing our hearts for Easter. And so I'm not saying that everyone should practice Lent, although I would really love if you did. <laughs> but I think at the very least, there is wisdom in setting up regular rhythms in our lives where we, we remind ourselves of what is at the core of our faith. And the church calendar does that for us. Lent does that for us. And then the season of Lent, as we look at Jesus' journey through the wilderness, you know, this story of Jesus' baptism and temptation is retold in Matthew and Luke's gospel. But what's striking about the text in Mark is that how abrupt the transition from the baptism to the wilderness is. If you read Mark, it's kind of like you're going on this, like, I hate roller coasters. So it's like being on the worst roller coaster ride of your life. It's jerky and you're like, one moment you're here, the next you're there, and then you're in a plunge. And, you know, because Mark says immediately a lot. He says, Jesus is, goes out to get baptized, and then immediately the Spirit sends him here, and then immediately he goes out here, and you're like, where are we going? We're just following the, you know, Mark on his um, very fast-paced story. But the way Mark sets up this story helps you see how closely the baptism and the temptations are linked. Because you don't really see that in Matthew and Luke, right? They kind of get a whole chapter each. And in, so in Mark, you almost imagine Jesus descending into the muddy depths of the River Jordan. It's not this clear, pristine, beautiful, sparkling waters. It's muddy, murky. And Jesus descends into these muddy waters. And he comes up, and then he's driven you know, that word that uh, Mark uses, the spirit drives him out, is this really forceful word. It's the same word that uh, use, is used to describe when Jesus casts out the demons. You know, so it's very forceful. And so Jesus comes out of the waters and then he's driven and almost maybe stumbling into the wilderness. His clothes still dripping wet and his ears ringing with the voice of God calling him beloved. And so... We find ourselves where, on the one hand, Jesus is beloved, and yet, on the other hand, he's immediately driven into the wilderness. And we get the sense that maybe those two things are closely connected. This wilderness is a place of disruption, right? It's the place sometimes we find ourselves in, shoved in, falling headlong in, stumbling in, out of no choice of our own, right? Maybe you received 
a unexpected medical diagnosis. Maybe you received a phone call that you didn't want to get. Maybe you have found yourself, after spending four years on your education, out trying to find a job that meets your desires and your passions. And we find ourselves in this, these places that we don't want to be in. And these places are places of disruption. They're places of disorientation. But I love what the early church, um, how, they th how they thought about Jesus' sufferings. You know, they didn't just think of Jesus suffering through his sufferings, but they envisioned Jesus as reliving the entirety of human existence. And but where Adam and Eve fails, Jesus overcomes. Where the Israelites fail in the 40 years in the desert, in the wilderness, Jesus and his temptation overcomes. And so how they saw it was that whatever Jesus underwent, he changed for our sakes from the inside out. Um, one of the early church fathers, Athanasius, says, the word Jesus became what we are so that we might become what he is. The word became what we are, and he transforms it, he transfigures it from the inside out so that we might become what he is. And the Bible says that we are partakers of the divine nature. And so his reality and ours are so deeply intertwined because he entered our existence so completely and so unconditionally. And so Jesus goes into the waters of baptism, not because he needs to be sanctified, but so that he transforms the water so it becomes the place of our cleansing. Jesus enters and goes through the wilderness and he transfigures it into holy ground. Jesus goes through the wilderness and because he overcomes, he transfigures it to holy ground. And so while the place of will, while the wilderness is a place of danger and temptation, today I want to suggest to you that it is also the place of our transformation. And so the wilderness can be a gift to us if only we have eyes to see. And tonight you might be saying to me, like, what do you mean a gift? Do you not know how it feels to be here right now? Like, this really sucks. <laughs> you know, I remember going through a long season of the wilderness after we moved here to the U.S., and I felt very much like how Mark described uh, Jesus being driven out into the wilderness. I felt like God plucked us up from where we were in Singapore with, um, you know, I had, I was in ministry, I had been in ministry for years, and it felt like things were going really well, and I, uh, I was having a lot of success and traction, and God plucked me, or how, that's how I felt, I was plucked out of there, and then brought over here and just dumped in the middle of nowhere. And for several years, feeling like that disorientation, where's up, where's down, we can't, we can't find a sense of certainty. You know, in the wilderness, the, the ground beneath your feet, the sand feels like it's constantly shifting. You can't figure out where is solid ground, and you're trying to stumble your way forward. And Jesus stumbles his way into the wilderness with the voice of God ringing in his ear, this is my beloved. And that's the same voice that's ringing in your ears. But you see, we are beloved, yet we are not fully living into the identity of beloved. And so the wilderness becomes the place of our becoming. 
And that's one of the gifts of the wilderness. The wilderness is the place of becoming. And the gift that it brings with it is a new identity forged in the crucible. The wilderness is the place of becoming who God already says we are, beloved. See, the wilderness is this sort of like middle space for the Israelites when they were freed from bondage, but not fully possessing the fullness of God's promise, right? God delivers Israel out of Egypt. They're free, but they're not fully free. They're not fully in the promise. And it takes them 40 years 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. There's a word for this middle space, this in-between space, the space of like, we're not who we used to be, but we're not quite who we're, we're, we are supposed to be. And this term is liminality. Liminality comes from the Latin word limen, which means threshold. It's like this time between the what was and what's next. Is this uncomfortable, middle, vague, ambiguous space where we, we kind of get a sense that things are changing, but we don't quite know what's going to emerge at the end? And I love what um, Dr. Carmen Eim says about liminal space. She says, for Israel, the wilderness journey from Egypt to Canaan is liminal space, that middle space. Far more than just being a place to pass through is the workshop of Israel's becoming. The wilderness is the temporary, temporary destination that makes them who they are. Liminal spaces always do this. They change us. And so we might think, okay, we're just going to get through this wilderness season until we get to the promised land and our eyes are on the promised land because we want the land flowing with milk and honey. But God is saying the journey through the wilderness is as important or maybe even more important for what he's wanting to do in us. Of course, we struggle and, you know, kick and scream through, but it's important. And so despite trying to stay faithful and obedient, maybe today you found yourself in a wilderness space. I want to say to you that the wilderness is not your punishment. It may be not even a test, but there's a work that God is doing that can only be done in the crucible where there's a refining and a pruning, because whatever we're used to leaning on so that we don't have to lean on God, God has to prune, take those things away. The things that prevent us from living fully into our identity as beloved, God has to prune so that we lean on him. And so even though it hurts and we don't understand it, God says you are beloved and you are becoming beloved. The wilderness is the place of daily bread. And so the gift it brings with it is the gift of total dependence on God. And it sounds nice till you live it and you're like, oh, I don't know that I like this very much. Like, I can provide for myself. I can take control of my own life. I can steer my own destiny. Thank you very much. You know, that feeling of being totally dependent on God and Israel in the wilderness for 40 years, they were complaining. They missed the food in Egypt. We missed the garlic and the leeks. I'm like, really? That's the thing you choose, to, <laughs> you choose to miss? And God so provides in his kindness bread. Uh, we talked about bread this morning, ladies. God provides bread of sorts for the Israelites. And they call it manna. God doesn't call it manna. They call it manna. Manna sort of means like, what, what's this? 
And so I think in the wilderness, God's provision often comes in ways we don't understand or we don't expect because we're so used to providing for ourselves and charting our own course. But God is teaching us how to trust him completely, removing that which is not him so that we can lean on him. And so the wilderness seems like a place of scarce physical resources, but in God's economy, it is a place of more than enough. And so it is an invitation from God to daily trust, and not just in the dramatic miracles of deliverance, right? God brings them through the 10 plagues and he parts the Red Sea, but God wants the Israelites to learn how to trust him in the day-to-day, in the mundane, in the ordinary, when all you see is dust and rocks. And that's the invitation that God has for us. But here's something really interesting about that phrase, give us our daily bread from the Lord's Prayer. That, that Greek word that's usually translated as daily actually doesn't show up anywhere else in Scripture. It's only used in the two versions of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew and Luke. And scholars can't find it anywhere else in any Greek text from outside Scripture. So maybe Matthew and Luke made it up. We don't know. So what that means is that scholars don't really know what the word means. So daily bread is sort of their best guess. So the proposed definitions for that word range from necessary for existence to for the current day or even for the coming day, or sometimes even tomorrow. And here's what's interesting. Amy Jill Levine, who's a Jewish New Testament scholar, suggests that the translation that makes the most sense in the first century Jewish setting is, give us tomorrow's bread for today. Now, to us, it doesn't, it sort of makes sense, but it doesn't. But to the first century Jewish mind, tomorrow's bread brings a connection to something called the world to come. And in Jewish texts, the world to come is different from the world right now, which is a world of suffering and pain. The Jewish imagination was for the world to come, which was the messianic age, which was the age where God would wipe away all their pain and suffering and make all things new again. And so she suggests that when they hear, give us tomorrow's bread, It is a connection to the world to come because in that world to come, there is a feast that God lays out. And this is in Isaiah 25, and we don't have time to go there now, but it says that the Lord on this mountain of the Lord will prepare a feast. And so when the first century Jew hears, give us tomorrow's bread for today, it's that sense of this feast that's waiting for us. And guess what? When we turn to the very end of our Bibles, to the end of Revelation, what's there? It's a feast. And God says, I will wipe every tear from every eye and pain will be no more. And so she says, give us tomorrow's bread today means bring about your rule, God, where we can eat at the messianic feast. And when we partake of the Lord's Supper together, we're sort of getting this taste of this feast. And so God is not just giving us just enough to make it through the day. He's working to bring about the fulfillment of all things in our lives and in all creation. The wilderness is the place of daily bread. Here's another. The wilderness is the place of presence where the gift that it brings is the gift of God himself. 
The greatest gift that God can give you is God himself. The greatest gift that God can give you is God himself. And this is what it means to be be beloved, where we find our greatest satisfaction in him and him alone. If you read Israel's narratives in Exodus, it sounds like the resources of the land are scarce. There's no water. There's no food. But you know what's everywhere and pops up all the time in Exodus? God's presence. It's the pillar of cloud. By day, the pillar of fire by night. At the very end of Exodus, they they build a tabernacle. And what we see is God's presence descending on this tabernacle. So God's presence is everywhere in the wilderness. But so often when we're in the wilderness, we can't feel him. Or we can't sense him. And we feel like he is far away or he is silent or the heavens are shut up. And we throw our prayers up and they just bounce back at us. And I, I've, I've loved the last several weeks kind of following the um, stories and events of the revival at Asbury. How many of you have seen those um, uh, stories? And it's just moved me so much. It stirred my heart to see the hunger of just so many people from ranging from college students to you know, retirees, and they're flocking to that place because they are hungry for the presence of God. And it stirred my heart so much. But yet at the same time, in the last few weeks, I've talked to so many people who've also said, what do I do when I don't feel God? I can't. What do I do when he feels far away? And if you look at the stories of the saints over the ages in scripture and even in church history, there's something called the dark night of the soul. And so if today you feel like I've been coming every week and, you know, we're talking about God's presence, we're talking about God's nearness, and I feel like none of that, and I feel like a fake because I'm trying to work myself up, I want to say you're not alone. And I often kind of imagine it, imagine it like this. What if when we're in the wilderness, God is holding us in the palm of his hand? Right? Scripture says that he holds us in the palm of his hand. What if he's holding us like this? And holding us close to his heart. And so we're in there, but it feels dark and we can't hear because it's all like muffled, muffly. But he's actually closer than we think closer than we can see, closer than we can feel. So the wilderness is the place of his presence. We just need eyes to see. And so how do we make it through the wilderness? I wish I could tell you the shortcut, because I want to (laughs) know. When my kids were younger, we uh, had this book that we loved. It's called We're Going on a Bear Hunt. Do you all know that one? We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. Um, it's a beautiful day. We're not scared, right? And then they, they meet all these obstacles like um, a squelchy bog. And they're like, oh, no, a squelchy bog. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh, no, we got to go through it. And they have the squelchy bog, and they have the river, and they have all sorts of obstacles. And every single time, we can't go over it. We can't go under it. We got to go through it. And so I don't have a shortcut for you for the wilderness, We have to go through it. 
But there are a few things that I think can help us as we walk through the wilderness because the depth of our transformation is determined by our response. And so four things I want to suggest to you. One, practice honesty. And I'm not going to go too deep into that tonight. Listen to the message from this morning. We talk a little bit about that. But look at the Psalms. If you are finding that you can't pray because you don't have the words, you can't be honest about how you're feeling, go to the Psalms. The Psalms are filled with scripture where the psalmist says, where can I go to meet God? God, I thirst for you. God, my soul is downcast. My tears have been my food day and night as I lay here. God, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And if you don't have the words to practice honesty, go to the Psalms. Uh, Practice remembrance. Um, Shani and I actually, we didn't meet in Israel, but the formative stage of our friendship was a trip to Israel together. And we got to uh, have a, enjoy a Shabbat dinner with a Jewish family. And what really struck me that night was when they prayed the opening prayer to start the meal on the Sabbath. They thanked the God of Israel who led them through the Red Sea out of Egypt. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years later, you see, we're supposed to be a people of remembrance. Because when you're in the wilderness and you can't tell which way is up or down or left or right, you can't figure out where you're going, the one thing that you know for certain, the only one direction you know for certain is what happened in the past. And so even though we can't dictate what happens in the future and we can't even sketch it out what it might look like, we can say God was faithful in these ways. So practice times where you sit and remember the ways God has been faithful to you in the past, in past wildernesses, in past seasons where you've found it difficult to walk through. Um, Third, practice attention. Learn to pay attention to the ways God might be getting your attention (laughs) in ways that might be unexpected or out of the ordinary. Not the, not, maybe not the miracles where God heals you instantly, but maybe in the day-to-day, the ways he the ways he provides in the small ways. Practice paying attention. And lastly, practice community. Practice community. We're meant to journey together. We're meant to, maybe some of you tonight, you're like, this is a good message, but I'm not really feeling the wilderness right now. Well, great, because there are people, uh, there are others in the room that need you. They need someone to say, hey, I've been through this. I know the way out. Let me walk with you. I've been through this. Let me come alongside you. We need one another. We need one another. As I was thinking about the wilderness and thinking about what it means to find hope when we're walking through the wilderness, the story of Hagar came to mind. And I think it's um, apt to talk about her today as we're in Women's History Week. International Women's Day was this week. And her story is a remarkable story Hagar, in uh, Genesis 16, she is, I wasn't going to go to the text, but we'll have to. (laughs) Um, But Hagar, in in short, she is um, mistreated by Sarah. She is given by Sarah to Abraham because Sarah isn't able to have the child that God promised. So Sarah says to Abraham, here, have my maidservant, Hagar. 
And, um, you know, she gets pregnant by Abraham. And then Sarah, you know, Sarah feels like she is treating her with contempt. And so she mistreats her and Hagar runs. Hagar runs away. And the beauty of this story in Genesis 16 is that Hagar runs where? To the wilderness. And where does she meet God? In the wilderness. And so I just want to read that part of the story to you real quick. The angel said to her, The angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness, along the road to shore. And the angel said to her, Hagar, Sarai's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? She says, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she replied. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. And then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. And then the angel also said, you are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. And you are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. Now, there are very few people in scripture where God says, you shall name your, your kid this name. And so there's something special here. God names her son Ishmael. God hears. For the Lord has heard your cry of distress. And then he continues to give a prophetic word on um, Ishmael. And then in verse 13 it says, Thereafter Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. In another version of the scripture it says, Haggai named God. And she names him El Roy. You are the God who sees me. Ishmael, God who hears, or God who listens. Elroy, God who sees, or God who may be seen. If you are walking through a wilderness, God is meeting you in that place, and he's saying, I'm the God who hears, and I'm the God who sees. I'm the God who hears, and I'm the God who sees. And so God, the God who calls Hagar by her name is the same God who's calling you by name. And as God who hears and God who sees, I think God's turning that around to us and saying, are you one who would hear and who would see? I'll close with this story, um, and the band can make their way up. A couple, a couple uh, weeks ago, I was in... I was going on a run in Alexandria, and I, I ran past this body of water, and there was this dead tree in the water, and I think I have a picture of that up there. And for some reason, I was really drawn to this dead tree. I don't know why. I, just, I think I have a morbid fascination with things sometimes. But I was just really drawn to this dead tree. And so there was a bench. Maybe it was the bench. I was drawn to the bench, so I sat down, and I was looking at this tree. Um, and I was... But I just felt drawn to the tree, and I felt like the Lord say to me, what do you see? What do you see? And the water was, as you can see, the water was still and unmoving. The tree was looking as dead as dead can be in the middle of winter. But then I got a sense that maybe under the surface of the water, maybe where my eyes can't see, there's a whole ecosystem of of animals and bugs and fish that were beneath the surface and plants life plant life maybe that's that's bustling and busy that I can't see and then it made me think 
it made me wonder, is there beauty in dead things? Is there beauty in the wilderness? Is there beauty in the pain that we walk through? Is there beauty? And then I remembered spring is coming. Spring is coming. Lent is the season where we walk through and remember and prepare for Jesus' death. But we do so remembering that spring is coming. And I'm not a poet, and I know we have a couple poets in the house, but this dead tree inspired some poetry in me. And so I'm going to read, I'm going to read what, what I wrote. Is there beauty in dead things? The life force of resurrection means that even in the stillness of death, God is on the move. There's an entire ecosystem of God at work beneath the system, beneath the surface, moving with full force toward that day when everything touched by death and terror is transfigured by the unstoppable life of God. And so here I sit gazing at the surface, casting my aches and questions at the stillness, knowing that they are not swallowed up by emptiness, but held in the hands that are remaking the world. And so maybe you are looking at your life today. Maybe you're looking at the wilderness that you're walking through today and you're wondering, can anything good come out of this? And I think maybe the Lord is saying, what do you see? What do you see? Do you see what's just in front of you? And this morning we talked about how hope is not just optimism, but that hope is the stubborn refusal to believe that what we see in front of us is all there is. And there's a deeper reality at work that we have to kind of grasp for and reach for. So what do you see? What do you see? What do you see? What does God see when he looks at you? He sees you, beloved. He sees what you haven't yet attained, what you haven't yet accomplished. He sees what you haven't yet fully lived into. He sees, beloved. And he's working, he's working even though you can't see it. He's working to transform you even if you can't see he's working to transfigure us from the inside out it's the unstoppable life of God people there's nothing that can stop his work in our lives but we can partner with him and so tonight my prayer for us is that we will have eyes to see what God is doing we'll have a heart to that's open to receive all of his love all of his care all of his provision all of his presence even if we can't feel it even if we can't sense it what do you see what do you see what do you see ask God to open your eyes tonight to see how he sees so that, that the work that he's desiring to you to do in you will come to pass father we lay our lives in your hands tonight we thank you that you are a God who sees, you are a God who hears, that Lord, nothing escapes your sight. None of our pain, none of our uh, anxiousness, none of our anguish escapes you, God. And even as we wait, and even as we wait in the anguish, even as we wait in the pruning, God, we know that something 
beautiful is about to emerge. Spring is coming, even if we can't see it, God. And that, Lord, we trust in the hidden work of God in our lives. We trust in the hidden work of Christ in our lives, transforming us to becoming the beloved, transforming us to becoming the ones who are loved, not just for our sakes, but God, if you say that, Lord, if Jesus, if you said that the greatest commandments are to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves, then God, we want to be loved by you so that we can love like you call us to love, Lord. And so tonight, Lord, we ask, transform us from the inside out. Help us to see like you see. We pray this in Jesus' name.